4: to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me this week is Mr. Kevin Heffernan. Howdy, folks. Also with this week is Mr. Nicholas Schlegel. Hello. And also with us is Mr. Axel Cohagen. Good evening. What's a better panel to talk about a girls coming of age story than a quartet of dudes, right? Yes, this week we were talking about Yaromel Yerez's, and I, pr- I apologize in advance for any kind of butchering of the Czechoslovakian language. We're probably all going to do it, but I will i will definitely cop to that, so apologies in advance. So, I'm going to say that again. This week we're talking about Yermel Jerez's 1970 film Valerie and Her Week of Wonders, based on the surrealist story by Vidislav Nezval. The story is something of a fantasy horror drama that works by its own internal logic. We'll be attempting to unwrap the mystery of Valerie a bit, and in this case, I'll say that I don't think it really matters if you've seen the film or not. Uh, It may actually be better to hear us jaw on about the film and give you all the spoilers and all that kind of stuff in advance. But I'll leave that up to you, gentle listener. Now, Kevin, when was the first time that you saw Valerie and her Week of Wonders, and what did you think?
1: I first saw this film in graduate school in my contemporary film theory class, and the professor who showed it was always astonished that most people only knew surrealism through the films of Louis Bunuel, either the stuff that he was doing in France in the 20s or his later career in Mexico and, of course, his triumphant return to uh, France in the 1970s. And he always, this professor always thought that it was really in Eastern Europe in, this professor always thought that it was in Eastern European cinema, particularly in Czechoslovakian films of the 60s and the early 70s that surrealism really reached its highest evolved and most elaborate form in the cinema so I was certainly uh, my curiosity was piqued by, by those comments and the film just completely blew me away it seemed like just a, a combination of every kind of film that I love most at the
5: how about you Nick I wish I had uh, Kevin's same immersion into it. Uh, it, it I did not it was something I came to. In the mid 2000s, I had seen stills from the film and they were, you know, in black and white and in color, and I was just absolutely, you know, enthralled with them. And I, I tried to look up what I could about the film. And there wasn't a tremendous amount on the internet back then about it, but I did manage to get a, a kind of beat up version of it. And so I watched it for the first time around, I'm guessing around 2005 or six, and my jaw was pretty much just, it was kind of just on. Hinged the whole time because it was so sensuous and such a such an immersive environment and and ev- every frame just so gorgeous that I you know it was one of those really affective experiences for me with cinema I can talk about that later right around that time Joe Dante had put up a trailers from hell commentary about it. And he seemed to just, as Joe frequently does, encapsulate my thoughts on the film. He talks about how he sort of went into a theater on on Melrose in 1975 and had no idea what to expect and came out also with his jaw unhinged because he felt he had seen a Masterpiece. And so that was kind of my initiation to it. And, and and as you know, Mike, I wound up actually screening it in a cult films class back in 2012 where actually Mike came in and did a guest lecture for me. It was It's always a treat to introduce that film to students because um, although they they seem to be the real hardcore film students seem to be a bit more familiar with it now, probably because of its score. Uh, four or five years ago, it was still really unknown to them, and there was no criterion release of it, for example. So I would say mid-2000s, but I I guess I first saw imagery from it about 15 years ago.
6: How about you, Axel? I saw it on one of the lists that perpetually floats to the Internet of movies, horror movies you haven't seen, and I always take it kind of personally when I haven't. So I had to track it down, and it turned out Netflix had a copy, probably getting close to 2010 or so. And I remember watching it and thinking that at every moment I completely understood what was going on, and also had no idea. And I was also impressed by the softness of it compared to a lot of American surrealism that I feel like has its points where it really has to punch you. This one was gentle, but still very impactful. So I thought, this is a movie that completely stands out amongst other movies, which made me remember it. I
4: think I saw this one probably around the same time that you did nick maybe a few years prior i remember buying a copy of it on vhs from shocking videos uh from mark johnson's company down in uh, west virginia i believe it was and yeah had that same kind of experience as far as just being kind of blown away and then i had a friend down in philadelphia joe gerasi who was doing this whole the valerie project where they were kind of rescoring it with a different score and they would do live performances of the film with the musicians in front of it. Unfortunately, I never got to see one of those, but I would see from his like email blasts and these kind of things that he was up to this. And then I rewatched it again when they showed it on TCM underground a few months ago. And it was like watching it again for the first time. It just really, you know, I, I saw it with new eyes And what really struck me was the editing style of the film. After a while, I was just like, wow, there's a cut every few seconds here. And I just sat there and kind of almost hypnotized myself by sitting there and counting how long each shot was. And I think the longest I ever got was eight seconds. And then it would just be that one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, four. One, two, and I'm just doing this over and over again. Like, my God, the, the editing of this thing is just masterful. So once I saw that again, I was just like, yeah, we really need to talk about this movie on the show. Because even though it does have a criterion release, and I know that it is much more popular than it was at one time, it feels like there's not as many people talking about it as there should be. And it feels like this is something that if people haven't given a chance, they definitely need to. So let's talk a little bit more about the plot, such as it is, because, like you were saying, Axel, it feels like there is an understanding. It's almost like ephemeral. When I'm watching the movie, I'm living inside of the movie. I can kind of understand what's happening in the movie, but almost as soon as those end credits hit, it's just like it washes away and I forget everything you know and i can remember moments of it and i think that's one of the best things about this film are these moments these striking images but really just it feels like something that i have a hard time holding on to
6: the thing i would add to that would be it reminds me of the critique made of john milton when he wrote paradise lost that he was too clearly on the devil's side i feel like this movie (laughs) and i think this is to its credit is very clearly on the devil's side, and it becomes most clear and most mesmerizing when it's showing the devilish side of things in Valerie's life.
4: Definitely Valerie is the star. She's in almost every single shot of this. And it kind of um, it, it follows her and just a real handful of characters. And what one of the nice things is is that a lot of characters are actually played – by the same actors so there's one woman who plays i think three or four different characters who plays the grandmother she plays a cousin who is actually a younger incarnation of the grandmother and she plays this mother character and whether or not they're all the same person is kind of left up for debate and really when it comes to this film there are so many ways that you can interpret it that i'm i'm Very curious where we're going to land with this at the end of the discussion, because I know some people are like, oh, hey, yeah, this is a a fantastic political allegory. And other people are like, no, this is a treatise on Freudian dream imagery. And it's just like – Does it have to be one or the other? Why can't it be both? Or why can't it be something else entirely? And some people look at it from just the musical score. And some people look at it from just these beautiful images that are there. You know, I looked at it from an editing perspective. So there are so many ways that you can kind of dive in here. And I feel like I'm kind of pussyfooting around the story because it's just – it is many layered, and there are all these repeating images and themes that keep coming back. And one of the things that I that really drives me as a film viewer and a film lover our themes, and I just really enjoy seeing these motifs come back time and time again and kind of get reinterpreted. I mean, there's one character who some people call the polecat, some people call the constable, some people call the bishop, and at times he has this kind of curly long hair, other times he has this white fright mask, and I think that's there almost all the time, and in one scene his his face is completely painted black, so and it's just his teeth and his eyes sticking out from under this black cowl and i love the way that we kind of are mixing things as we go through here so we're not always landing on the same square as we go around the board
1: one of the things that fascinates me about the film is its constant juxtaposing and and careening back and forth between different modes and genres and styles of filmmaking the state film Google and Czechoslovakia screen films from all over the world in all kinds of different uh, modes and, and genres, all the great European uh, auteur films. I think we can clearly see in this film, a lot of the popular Gothic films uh, from the West month, you know, from uh, Italy and the UK probably would have been uh, at least talked about. Maybe clips would have been shown and at different moments, Mike, when you mention these motifs returning, drastically transformed by their situation. Sometimes that's because a motif we would associate with uh, an erotic film would be recast uh, in a vampire film, or a scene that we might uh, imagine would be part of a very lyrical film would be recast in terms of family melodrama. All of these images and motifs and the musical score certainly undergoes these crazy uh, transformations and, and amalgamations and different uh, different keys and different tempos and things like that. So, to me, it's it's sort of a, a meditation on on all of the ways that that films were being made in the late '60s and the early '70s by a filmmaker who was really steeped in and passionate about a whole range of films.
4: One of the things that has come up. Many times during this month, we've been talking about Apocalypse Now and Some Call It Loving, and then this film, and next week we'll be talking about Celine and Julie Go Boating. One thing that I keep returning to in this month is the idea of fairy tales, and Valerie, to me, definitely fits right into that idea of a fairy tale. There's a wicked grandmother who at times uh, we might think is her mother might be a wicked stepmother. There are all these kind of weird twisted familial relationships that are going on. There's the evil character, uh, uh, also an evil character of the constable slash Bishop slash polecat, who very much like the, the, the wolf in um, red riding hood, you know, masquerades as a person, but is actually at heart is, is a ferret. And the, there are, again, kind of kind of coming back to the family relationships, there's a, a boy named Eaglet or Rico, who sometimes he says he's her brother, sometimes we believe he's her brother, sometimes there's a sexual relationship or a sexualized relationship between the two of them. We're not really sure what's going on. And then, of course, there's magic, and there's these ideas of these magical earrings that she has, and the earrings really kind of take us through a lot of the film, and that's what we See right towards the beginning are her earrings getting stolen by Eaglet for the constable character, and he is—he's almost like the huntsman, you know, coming to slay um, Snow White or something. So, but then eventually he kind of reneges on that and gives the earrings back, and these earrings end up having the power to kind of be almost like a little bit of a reset button for Valerie. She's able to get out of some um, harsh situations through these earrings, and. Next week when we talk about Selene and Julie go boating, it's these pieces of candy that they put in their mouths that kind of get them into these sticky situations. In this case, it's these earrings that get Valerie out of it. I feel like there's that kind of fairytale vibe to things Fairy tales generally seem to go a little bit more straightforward than this. And that's where this kind of dreamy imagery comes in because we, it does feel like at times when you're in a dream, you can be going in one direction, suddenly turn left, and it feels like nothing
5: uh, untoward
4: has really happened.
5: When you mention the earrings, which are are so pivotal to the plot, such as it is, they they are a great sort of way into the story. I mean, the film does open up with that, and uh, and not only that, we have a an, an auditory cue. There's a signifier. It's almost like a, a one up, uh, like video game motif. It's like a Donkey Kong or um, or, or uh, Super Mario Brothers. Whenever the the, the the like the earrings, pearl earrings show up, it's like ding. <laughs> I don't know if you guys noticed or not, but next time you take a look at it, there's always this little like one up. Uh, motif that that occurs, which is very cute. So there's, it's a nice it's a nice use of of uh, a parallel and recurring uh, theme and motif for those earrings. But again, Mike, just going back to what you said and the the comment you made prior to the the fairy tale stuff, which is yeah, you have again that just. This incredible fusion of a lot of different uh, tropes going on there of of the fairy tale of um, the gothic novel of of euro horror in general the conflation of sex and and some violence or perceived violence it's all just sort of stewed into this pot it's it's very difficult to to ascertain any sort of real plot or narrative causality in Valerie which is a thing that typically tends to alienate a lot of, of viewers and like I was telling my students not only that. But just in general, people, if they a- apply uh, traditional viewing strategies to a film like this, they're going to probably wind up disappointed because nothing's in a nothing's tied into a nice traditional classical Hollywood you know narrative bow for them to easily digest. It, it, it challenges the viewer uh, to some degree. I find it actually the plot. And 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 the story, you know, the narrative, perfectly fine. You know, I don't I don't need to have everything explained to me. But I was just in researching, doing some research for the show. I came across a review from the uh, the AV Club. You know, the Onion's, a- which is a pretty pretty well respected. And then the, the the reviewer, you know, didn't care for the film, gave it a C minus, and and complained about narrative causality. And I thought perhaps they're missing the point of the film, which is really, uh, you asked each of us sort of like, how do we approach this film, or how do we, you know, what what do we make of it? You said you you look at the editing. You talked about some people look at it from the beauty. That's me, actually. For me, this film is sort of all about the image affect. I watch this film and I actually get emotional, uh, like I do with some of like uh, Terrence Malick's work, for example, his early work, where I can see a frame that is just so so beautiful that it captures uh, life in all of its 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 like glory, and it's so perfect that I actually get emotional. And there are many sort of magical frames to borrow a phrase from Echo, in this film that I can just pause and stare at indefinitely. I mean, obviously my adoration is clearly on my sleeve here, but I really watched the film from a a deeply immersive and emotional standpoint. And that's how it affects me.
6: I kind of come to it from the perspective of the playfulness of there's such a multiplicity of meanings from all of the symbols that I enjoy. You know, you can kind of come to it with whatever tools you want to bring, Freudian, Marxist, and keep pulling stuff out of it. And the simplicity in a good way of the story holds together. One thing that I would add to that is that I really appreciated it's a pretty proletariat Fairy tale—you're never too far away from the good guys or the bad guys. There's not a lot of <laughs> extreme magic going on, and I thought that was kind of a nice change of pace from what you would see in maybe more of a western thing, where the there's the kings and there's dragons. It's the bad guys right down the street, and the good guys talking to them upstairs, and everyone's meeting for you know an ale and something afterwards.
1: The fairy tale, fantasy, science fiction, art, cinema was at this point one of the most commercially predominant genres and modes in Eastern European cinema. I mean, the Soviet Union, who, of course, brutally crushed the Czech New Wave in 1968 with their invasion, they were in the middle of this glorious artistic renaissance of their own science fiction fantasy cinema. Makaveev had his very eccentric take on on the fairy tale, the way he would uh, put together some of his uh, allegories of sexual liberation. And so the, the fairy tale elements, I think, are really very, very much of their time in this film. And, and, you know, of course, the one thing that we know about fairy tales is they can be infinitely reinterpreted and recast. And two of the predominant ways that people try to make sense of fairy tales are either sort of a, what we might call a psychosexual Freudian approach or some sort of uh, political analysis so we could we could talk about just the the mode of the fairy tale itself as being the source the engine that drives a lot of these this extraordinary menu of choices that the filmmaker is is dipping into
4: there are so many interesting symbols when it comes to the film there are are of course one of the biggest symbols is talking about fertility because the week of wonders when you boil it down to the title valerie is experiencing her first week her first time that she is experiencing her period and we get that fairly quickly in the film in this beautiful scene where she's walking across these flowers and some of the blood from her lands on these flowers and so we have the symbol of this beautiful white flower with the red from her blood on it. And we get that red coming back quite a few times. There's a great shot later on uh, of bottle of wine that's been turned over and pouring out red wine onto this tablecloth, this white tablecloth. And it's just very interesting the way that we get some of these things. And of course, sexuality, this sexual awakening plays such a major role in here. And we get all these things like these, uh, I I think they're kind of these uh, carved reliefs where you have these uh, beehives and the beehives seem to be right at like crotch level. So we have the whole idea of the fertility and the activity that's going on with these, know these uh carriers of the pollen and all this there's a great scene where the the servants uh these four female servants are out in this uh um, river and they're washing and they're very very ample let's say and then uh shortly thereafter we have them out in the yard and they're washing their clothes and this man with this horse and of course the man and the horse very virile symbols coming into here and here's this big fucking cock this rooster sitting there and they're like you know kind of shooing it away and stuff and i'm just like okay yeah and we get chickens throughout this whole thing and of course the chickens play into this whole idea of the the ferret who is our bad guy in here so it's interesting that we're playing on many levels with this whole idea because at one point our our bad guy actually turns into a ferret and we see him I guess, getting dispatched when he's trying to right. kill this chicken. And I do have to say, even though the ferret is going for the chicken's neck and is going to rip out its neck and everything, it almost looked like it was the beginnings and of, course, of, yeah. of a, a romantic overture. Yes. <laughs> so uh, yeah and then there's a part later on where I've never actually seen a hen house like this before but I can't say I've seen too many hen houses but it was all of this uh, these white walls with all these chicken heads sticking out of them and that's where some of our action of the film takes place so it's just kind of layered on and layered on and layered on so it's definitely that's to me one of the major symbols of the film
1: flowers that her drops of blood land on are daisies which are pagan symbols of innocence and purity. The, one of the things that has always fascinated me about Eastern European culture is the way in which the earlier earth religions were never really completely beaten down by Christianity. We can see this in a lot of these cultural forms that come out you know, in, in art and in, in popular culture. For example, the Communist Party in Eastern Europe frowned on things like nudism, there was a very puritanical element to the Stalinist uh, regime and uh, the post-Stalinist regime in the Soviet Union and the way that they tended to view appropriate behavior. And they could never really stamp out some of this celebration of the body, for example, that we could see in, in a film like this and in, in many aspects of Eastern European culture. One of the other fascinating things to me about the film is the way in which all of the female characters are mirroring each other at different points in the film. And so the daisies that Valerie's blood drips on, they come back in the daisies that uh, Kvatenarka, the the little flower girl, she's always handing out the daisies. Kvatenarka could be this figure that is evoking the world that Valerie has just left, or maybe Valerie appears as a sort of aspirational fantasy figure for Kvetanarka because she's standing on the other side of this experiential gulf. And that's clearly the way that uh, Valerie and her grandmother are relating to each other, that there's this mutual sense of what is it like to be that other person? You know, you know, grandmother why are you the way you are can i ever imagine you as a younger person the grandmother is always you know wanting to be young again and of course uh, i'm sure we'll be talking about hedvika uh, and her and her wedding you know but that's oh, yeah. another thing you know why can't you get married to a disgusting jowly farmer uh, like hedvika did that's you know her grandmother talking and we actually see uh, hedvika in a earlier scene where all of the nuns are coming out. They're saying that prayer, St. Agnes, all the virgin saints, pray for us. And Hedvika is actually in that line of nuns. She's one of the nuns in there. So the movie seems to be juxtaposing all of these female characters and all of the possible outcomes of their life and putting them in relief in relation to each other. And of course, all of this is Valerie's imagining or fantasies or her phobias about what what this this world of sexual experience could hold for her and uh, of course the ending in the film which i know we'll talk about uh, is a remarkable example of that
5: the symbolism for me is uh, and the film is you know pregnant with it is uh oh pregnant was that a it's an interesting pun since we're talking about fertility. Sorry about that. For me, it's it's uh, it, it really winds up holding the film together in so many ways because, as I said, the film as I saw it the first time I saw it and on repeated viewings is a very sensorial uh, experience. But on repeated viewings is, of course, when I think that a lot of this sort of like uh, sinks into the psyche and you can you start to notice. I think more the um, uh, the symbolism because there's so, so simply so much of it in there, and it's all it's all clearly symbolic of of all the motifs that are are relevant in the film so it, it whatever it lacks as some of the critics may say about the film in, in terms of narrative or plot or something it, it seems to more more than make up for in its sort of ongoing and, and ever present use of symbolism in literally every scene uh, of the film. Uh, so, uh, you know, and we can talk about it some more, but I mean, I, I that's, that's my take on the symbolism is, is that I just find it, it just increases the, uh, pleasure with the film on each viewing. If in, you know, every so often you notice something new, like for example, Mike, when you said that the bees were at sort of like a genital level, you know, I, I, I never noticed that before that hyperactivity down, <laughs> down in the, in that area. See, and I noticed the bees obviously, and their symbolic meaning, but I didn't ever notice exactly where they were. Yeah, I'm sure the film will continue to open up in that way.
6: First, I'd like to apologize. I thought I had the beep turned off that says the door is opening <laughs> from our alarm. And so if you heard that, I apologize. My great dean had to go to the bathroom. so <laughs> Then I was going to add something along with what Kevin was saying about the women in this film and how they all connect with each other. That reminds me a lot of feminist critiques like Luce Irigaray and Helene Siksu and the idea that feminism in women's writing tends to not have a lot of really easy boundaries where one thing stops and another thing begins. They tend to be fluid and, and work together in a way that can often be very frustrating from a masculinist perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think you see a lot of that in this film. Kevin, I believe that you, you touched on this. The idea of... Different characters
4: being reflections of one another, if not the same person, a different version of them. So uh, Hedvika being in, in the convent versus being married, and these are two possible paths for Valerie. And Valerie, her lineage is very interesting. I mean, she is allegedly the daughter of a bishop and a nun, and uh, it's kind of funny just to bring my own personal story into this. I have a friend, his father was a priest and his mother was a nun, and they fell in love and left the church and uh, when he he is uh, unnaturally pale and can't go out in the sun, he gets skin cancer very easily. so we've always said that he was cursed by God to be a vampire and walk the earth like blade because of his parents you know leaving the church and everything so it's very funny of how much vampirism plays a part. In this film, because it is the film is lousy with it. It is all over the place. I mean, the grandma, I mean, there's there's literal vampire vampirism going on. This is as close as we get to a full-out horror film is with this vampirism, seeing the grandmother in the casket, down in in the cellar and everything, the bite mark on Hedvika's neck and all this. So it's pretty fantastic that we have this theme of vampirism, but it seems that the threat doesn't necessarily come from outside very much. When you look at our antagonists, one of the main antagonists in the film is the grandmother, who should be really this kind of safe place, but So much of the horror takes place in what I believe to be Valerie's house. It seems like so much of it is taking place in the cellar and in the grandmother's kind of sitting room kind of thing. Really, we're not going out into the dark, spooky woods to get the, our wits, you know, scared out of us. So much of this is taking place inside of her house.
1: Well, that's a convention of the gothic novel and the gothic horror film that that sprung from it. This idea that that the more we investigate these hidden spaces in the house, the more we, the closer we get. To this shameful family secret that 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 each generation has to act out, and you, typically in a you know Italian horror film or a or a gothic novel, we start with this one character who comes to the house to investigate something or to marry the lord of the manor, and they slowly find themselves being pulled into this inevitable fatalistic reenactment of the the sins of the parents and the grandparents and the great great grandparents, and you know, movies like. Baba's Lisa and the Devil. You know, she mm-hmm. finds out that she's the same woman that they're all talking about. One of the things that really fascinates me about the film is the way that it takes all of these different elements. You know, I would never would have thought that you could take elements of the gothic novel and turn it into a fairy tale, a female coming of age film. Some of the stuff in here is is so elusive, so symbolic, so. Allegorical. It reminds me of a lot of Asian films, particularly Japanese films, that that take as their premise this idea that when the when the girl gets her period, she suddenly has mm-hmm. this extraordinary new insight into the motivations of all the people in her family, and her family suddenly become complete strangers to her. Uh, and we certainly see that in a lot of Miyazaki films, like uh, Spirited Away. You can see it in uh, Korean movies like The Quiet Family, and, and and all this, all of these these elements. Uh, that the film really seems to have tapped into these ongoing modes of storytelling that that get used over and over again and and puts them together in this what you so much call it a stew pot. Uh, <laughs> and, with, and with and with all of this all this crazy stuff going on uh, and with a narrative that's as ambiguous as it is these repeated visual motifs, what we might call, you know, symbols or something else, that's really what provides the formal unity of the film. It would be it would be pretty much chaos if we didn't have all of these current images of the clockwork and the birds and the fountain and the fire and all these all these things that keep coming back again. It
5: would it would be total chaos. It would be a, a, a Jenga tower waiting to fall if you pulled one of these these disparate elements away from from this structure. And it's funny Kevin that you just mentioned the clock because I wanted to ask you directly what did you guys make of the clock in terms of like the structural mise en scene the, the clock-like mechanisms. I found that to be so fascinating, but in terms of like symbolic uh resonance, I you know, I was I wasn't exactly sure what to make of it. I had one theory, but it's pretty out there. but did, what what do you guys make of that? okay, we're gonna make you do your out there theory first? Uh, oh no, it's so <laughs> it's so out there. It, well, for okay. me, it was almost like a tales of Hoffman dollmaker maker thing that yeah. was going going on in my mind when i when I looked at it and heard the music that was accompanying it in terms of like you know folklore and fairy tale and mythology and stuff like that. But I don't know how appropriate that was. I didn't give it too much thought i I thought I'd just throw it out tonight because I thought it to be such an interesting mechanism in its mechanism i saw
1: attention in this film between different registers of what the sexual experience what sexual awakening can mean Uh, and of course in a particular kind of western capitalist individualist pornographic fantasy we imagine that sexual awakening and sexual activity is emancipatory that it's spontaneous that it's anarchic but we certainly know that that these uh, impulses can be put to use to increase conformity and the rigid mm. adherence to gender roles, and that that beautiful theme that, uh, uh, keep your secret little girl, you know, it, it comes in, in two different versions. One is that beautiful thing with the child's choir. And the other is this weird military march that we see when people are, you know, go coming under that arch, the, the arch that leads to the, uh, the beginning of, uh, of town. And I just sort of saw that, that clockwork imagery as, as part of this tremendous undertow of the forces of, hierarchy and and conformity mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and submission and oppression mm-hmm. uh, that there's really no sense in this film that people following the mantra that I understand some people were saying in 1970 of uh, if it feels good do it that that's just as likely to reify and reinforce oppressive abusive, structures and experiences as it is to lead to some kind of emancipation so I saw that scene where she's sort of hanging there with wow. all of that clockwork as as a sort of visual expression of that claustrophobic marching in time you know nice. you are a woman now now it's time for you to take your place the way women do and the way they always have and that's clearly the direction the grandmother is pulling her into right.
4: Well, and the grandmother, when she kind of appears from behind that piece of furniture, I think it was Hames that pointed out in one of the extras on the Criterion Collection that when she comes out, it's like she's a Swiss clock, like a cuckoo clock, or one of these kind of, you know, the the much more elaborate ones like they have at Frankenmuth, where the characters will come out and she kind of goes around the room and everything, almost like she's an automaton. And the soundtrack, the music on the soundtrack definitely kind of supports that as well.
1: Yes, like a, a gargoyle almost. Yes,
4: or like uh, you know the uh, the one that they have in Frankenmuth, Michigan at, at noon or whatever. There's a very elaborate kind of show that goes on where the clock will open up and it tells the whole story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin, which is kind of crazy, but I know, you know what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking I do, about. Yeah. You, you've been there. Speaking of chickens,
1: there's a great horror film called The Mill of Stone Women. I, I
4: know. That, I that thought of that
1: movie, Kevin, when I that, watched it. Yeah. That the, uh, these At the end of the film, all of these women's corpses just come out in this horrible cuckoo clock like thing, you know, you know, and, and the, it's really quite remarkable.
5: Windmills are so such a great trope, you know, from like *Brides of Dracula* and *Mill of the Stone Women*. And I, and yeah. that, that's when I, when I was watching this film uh, the first time, I thought that that was so so cool. That imagery just popped into my head. Foreign correspondent,
1: it's 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 really a remarkable, yeah, a more remarkable visual design, visual symbol.
4: One thing that just occurred to me while we're talking here was thinking about um, Orico. One of the first times we see him, he's chained to the fountain in town, uh, very loosely chained. He probably could have got himself out, but whatever. And the second that we see him, he's chained in this waterfall. And when I was thinking about the film, one of the, the recurring places, you know, you talked about that march into town through that tunnel, and you can insert your own Freudian symbology for the the what the tunnel and what that represents. But the town centers upon that or centers on yeah that fountain and it just plays such a uh, an important part and water of course is a you know very potent symbol but i definitely love you know we have so many scenes around that fountain we have the uh flagellates who are running into town this (laughs) kind of pack of wild men and everything and they're beating themselves on the back and then they're wetting their whips inside of the fountain and everything and then we also have later on the constable and he likes to use a whip and when he whips that water and it sets on fire fire. god whoa (laughs) what a crazy symbol that is and what a what a wonderful scene it is too
1: yeah, and of course the, uh, we so we have the scene of of a basement with Father Gracie and, and grandmother. She's looking through the keyhole. Remember they make her yes. look through the keyhole, and we ha- and we have that that scene with the uh, very strong sadomasochistic or dominant submission dynamic.
5: That particular scene where the polecat Bishop Richard. Is is uh, lights the uh, water f- um, fountain on fire? From just from a, from the technical accomplishments of this film, that is a hard scene to light. The cinematographer, I mean, you've got to deal with you know uh, you're shooting daylight and you've got to expose for the fire and you've got to expose also for the elements and around you. And that, I mean, not that the whole film is gorgeously lit and shot, but that's a particularly tough. That's a tall order, that scene. you know, There's only so much you can do in timing to, to get that just right. But that that sort of balance between shooting at that time of day with the torch and then lighting that on fire from that, that sort of overhead shot, that high-angle shot looking down, wow. I mean, that is really remarkable.
1: I don't think there's any process shots in the film at all.
5: I don't think there's a single one. No, I can't think of one. It's, it's just too organic.
6: To tie in with what you were asking, Mike, about sort of the – the church and that uh, public fountain i couldn't help but do a, a foucaultian reading on that and the idea of the parts of our sexuality that are become public for whatever reason you know oh. when do we reproduce how do we express ourselves you know are we able to behave sexually or not and that was a place where people came together and kind of were forced to submit to what expectations might be and so i kind of saw him being chained to that as part of what it would be as your young sexuality. Maybe you're thinking about this or that, but you know people are judging you, so you have to come back to this water where people then are flagellating themselves and punishing themselves.
4: And is that also where later on the um, sticks are all laid out so that they can set
6: Valerie on fire? It's in adjacent space. Ah, Okay, okay.
1: It's right next to it. It's right next to it. Right in the square. Yeah, about 10 feet away.
6: I would argue in that scene where she's about to be set on fire that that is and if I'm reading too much into this, you know, call me into it, but the most sexualized I've ever seen a person look about to be set on fire.
1: <laughs> Actually, at the end of the Ingrid Bergman, Joan of Arc movie, where she is on fire, she is orgasming over and over again. Uh-huh. Just check that out sometime. I was, saw that movie on TV when I was a kid, and it made me feel funny, and I didn't figure that out until like I was like in graduate school.
5: Bergman's fingerprints are—you can be seen in this film for sure, yeah, here and there, no question. The
4: constable slash bishop
5: slash Richard, with his kind of um, you know the
4: the face of death, but really for me he really was screaming out Nosferatu as I was watching it.
1: Oh yeah, with the bat ears and stuff. perhaps No question,
5: and and you know I also would go one step further and say that even though the, the Reginald uh, uh, Barlow in Salem's Lot is clearly derived from from uh, Nosferatu. I gotta tell you, every time I look at, at uh, Valerina Week of Wonders and see The Constable, I, I, I immediately think of uh, Barlow as well. There's a clear link there, too. I think
1: the filmmaker who was the most influenced by Czech cinema that viewers would be familiar with is Terry Gilliam. It's so mm-hmm. obvious mm-hmm. that his animation style was largely derived from Karel Zeman and later Svankmeyer. Uh, but I really think we can look at a film like this and see that that Gilliam was really, really taking notes on, on the way people are costumed, uh, mm. the way characters move through space. Yes. And that strange thing where we're in an exterior space and nothing really out of the ordinary is going on, but things just don't look quite right. Yeah. And and we can see that as early as uh Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but it just goes into, into hypertrophy in a film like his reworking of. munchausen and and stuff like that i i really think that one of the things that makes this sort of truly of its time is we can look at this film made in 1970 and we can see the way in which other filmmakers have kind of transformed and tweaked and and domesticated this a little bit and i think i think terry gillam uh uh would have watched this film over and over and over again
4: What's funny, in my notes, I had uh, the scene when we first see the bishop, and he's got that mask over his face, the ferret mask, and he pulls the mask away, and it's his kind of crazy face, and then he puts it back, and then he pulls it away again, and it's Valerie's father, the Richard character. When I saw that the first time, I thought, oh, that looks very much like uh, in the Black Lodge in Fire Walk With Me by David uh-huh. Lynch when Mrs. Tremaine's nephew has a mask over his face and he pulls it away and it's him. He puts it back, it pulls away again and it's this monkey underneath it. And I was just like, oh, that's, it's almost a reversal of going from the animal to the human. Uh-huh. And in this one, it's the, uh, you know, that in Fire Walk With Me, it's the human to the animal. So yeah, and that that crazy mask that the bishop wears at times is just like, oh man, it it makes a scary thing even more
6: scary. I came this close to opening up the show with a joke about save the pine weasel, which would have now tied in very nicely. (laughs) (laughs) The movie I wanted to compare this to. And I, I think it's a really interesting comparison is the reflecting skin. Because both are daylight horror films, both are pastoral, both have kind of that animal nature element to it. And I think both are kind of experiencing a resurgence. I know uh, Reflecting Skin just made the cover of Rue Morgue recently as part of the fact that
5: I think it's being reissued. I have to revisit that. I, I saw it in the mid-90s, but, just, uh, but um, I need to take – I think the imagery, I think you're right on uh, Axel. If I recall, I can, I can already in my mind seeing, seeing parallels in the imagery. I can't think of that movie without thinking of that frog scene. I wish I could compare this to a film. I, I it's you know I, it's hard. There's little bits and pieces here that are reminiscent. You can I can see the fingerprints of other films on this, and I can see this film's influence on others. But gosh, it is just one of those real cinematic, um, you know, cinematically unique films that it's like. Gosh, there's really night. Nice, it's hard to find a film that kind of just pulls off everything quite like Valerie. You know, it's bizarre.
4: Well, it makes fun of the church or, or or it plays with the church so much that, of course, Bunuel was on my mind as well when I was watching well, this. was a critique, for sure. Definitely. I mean, our, one of our main bad guys... Well, actually multiple of our main bad guys are members or figures of the church. You know, I talked about the constable, who's also the bishop, and then her father is allegedly the bishop or a bishop. Mm-hmm. And then there's Father Gratian, who is just this very, very troublesome character. <laughs> we see him come in, and he's, he's definitely he's got this big black beard and everything, but his face is definitely very light. It looks like he's been whitened with makeup, so he's almost— he's not nearly as white as the bishop slash constable, but he, it seems like he's getting there and it seems like he's definitely in league with this guy and just the way that he is very interested in an overt and wrong way in Valerie. Uh, he's definitely a sexual predator and it seems like he can't necessarily deal with that. So at one point he hangs himself though. He's, Okay, he comes back to life later on, but there are so many interesting bits with him. And I think the most interesting for me is the moment when he's telling the story about how he lived amongst the cannibals and he quote unquote saved this black woman who then ends up, um, what was it, breaking the, the sixth uh, commandment?
1: No, uh, she becomes a, a sex worker in a f- French dock town, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's her ultimate fate, right? Yes, yes.
4: Yeah, and prior to that, she had broken the sixth commandment. I had to look up what the sixth commandment was. Uh, apparently, apparently, it goes it depends on what church you belong to. Sometimes it's uh, thou shalt not murder, and then other times it's adultery. I think in this case, it might be adultery. adultery. Yeah, yeah, Save The that.
1: seventh commandment, the famous exploitation movie of the thirties. Right?
4: <laughs> but yeah, his seduction scene. I mean, that is, he is he's the one that causes Valerie to use her earrings twice you know she has these kind of get out of jail free cards and he's the one that threatens her so much that she has to use them twice once by trying to burn her at the stake which is you know pretty good reason and the other prior to that is his alleged seduction of her which is just very very rapey
1: he leads her she's backing away from him toward the window and she reaches these lace curtains and when she eats the earring, she twists herself up in the curtains in this sort of dance-like move. And that later gets replayed uh, uh, in the basement with the Constable Vampire character. She does the exact same thing with a spider web and an almost identical mm-hmm. image. And and that's actually, uh, Mike, the scene you're talking about, I think that's the most shocking and frightening scene in the film, to me, anyway. I mean, was, uh, you know, parent of a parent of a daughter. But that really with all the phantasmagory that happens in the film with when the priest comes in and closes the door mm-hmm. and starts slowly walking toward yep. her saying how he's taken an interest in her and he's just slowly walking toward her. That to me is the, is the scariest most freaky moment in the yep. film because you kind of don't know What's going to happen? Because it's it's played in a totally different way than the rest of the film is played. I think
5: I, I would have to agree that 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 scene just kind of makes your skin crawl, and you have an instant dislike of this character, as as Mike said, just because of his 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 actual physical characteristics. I think uh, are are in direct contrast to his supposed volition in life, and for me, it, that is the worst scene. But I'll tell you, the other one that kind of strikes me is this sort of like. Um, is the peephole scene when when we see him in front of the grandmother? And she's, you know, uh, doing the self-flagellation. She's, she's, you know, the whole sadomasochism thing. But it's also got the peephole. It's got the scopophilia thing. It's, it's her looking at her grandmother and seeing her in a new, in a new way in this adult world of sexuality, sexuality and stuff. And that that scene also is, is a very close second for me in terms of like the disturbometer. It, well, and I and I it's probably it's mostly because it's spectatorial. There's again that 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 idea that we're voyeurs of a voyeur.
1: Well, but it's it's coerced. Foyerism. She yes. tries to get away, and she, he won't let her. <laughs> he won't let her in her <laughs> By the way, I believe the 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 actor who plays uh, Father Gratian is the only sort of known performer in the film. I believe he was in the party and uh, the party and and the guests. I believe that this was mostly cast with unknowns, but he would have been the uh, he would have been the character. He would have been the, the performer in the film that audiences would say, "Oh, it's that guy." Oh, okay. So, so he has kind of pride of place right. in terms of, in terms of casting. It was clear that, uh, it's not clear. I don't know. I can't crawl inside anyone's head making it's a movie, probably clear. Yeah, he's but, 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 but he seems to have been cast. In other words, they, uh, he was given a certain pride of place in terms of the, the impression that the filmmakers wanted to convey with that character.
5: Well, as a known quantity, he definitely delivers. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, you know, there's other more obvious
4: symbols going on here. There's a lot of apples happening. I mean, Valerie's eating apples. She's surrounded at one point. I talked about how the grandmother's in a coffin, but then she's kind of laid down in what I would consider to be a very coffin-like shape that seems to be all created from apples. A, A beer of apples, right. A beer, yes, thank you. Very very nice one. That's where we find that Gratian is still alive. He's been secreted down into this uh, uh, cellar where so much of the action takes place, including at one point an orgy, which I, I found to be very surprising that this whole orgy, at least that's how I interpreted it, was at one point it seems like there's a big party going down in the cellar and it seems to be a little bit less than uh, morally uprightish. ish
1: uh, Yeah, but it's not as... Full on orgiastic as the uh, the outdoor thing at the end.
4: No, no, definitely. <laughs> yeah, back in the hall, yeah. <laughs> definitely. And that, at least in in the end of the film, we get to see you know Gratian isn't punished as much as I would like him to be but him being in that kind of big bird cage not to uh, drop jack hill in here but being <laughs> in this big bird cage seems like a kind of fitting thing he it seems like it's been sunk way into the ground he doesn't have that much room to move but uh yeah that that ending scene in the end scene I guess we can kind of talk about this a little bit more the end definitely is playing upon so many of the things that we've already seen through the rest of the film as far as these reflections of people and seeing these kind of different forms of, I would say different forms of Valerie. You know, to me, the the flower girl is kind of the girl that she once was before she hit this stage of maturity. And Hedvika seems to be the girl that she could be, but probably doesn't want to be. And it's interesting, I think that Hedvika we see her at this bacchanal. Is she making out with the guy who purports to be her father? Am yes. I remembering this right? Yeah. And
1: she enfolds him. In the, there, one is in a black costume. The other is in a white out are against this huge tree. And they seem to kind of enfold each other.
4: That whole idea of enfolding keeps coming through this thing as well, especially with the bishop with that huge cloak. Yeah, or when we see him early on, I love what the moment when we first see him as the bishop, where we don't necessarily see his face, where we just see his arm sticking out of that palaquin that's being brought into town in this very ornate ceremony. You know, it's interesting that it's the wedding party comes to town, and then the missionaries come to town.
1: And the performers, come to town they all converge on this town at the same time
4: all at once yeah and it seems to be that these are many of the different ways that valerie could go and it seems like it's just presenting all of these different ideas to her so yeah it could be the marriage it could be the convent or it could be something a lot more fun than that
6: there's a way you can watch this movie as an eastern european version of free to be you and me or some 70s feel good movie for (laughs) teens with just the elements that are a little bit off and almost satirical in that aspect and I kind of like watching it in that way
1: oh there's a definite countercultural feel to it there's there's no mistake that it's it's of that time and it's and it's I, I guess a question to ask would be who might the audience for this film <laughs> have been uh, would it be for teenage girls to sort of uh, that thing where they, the, you know, the boys go off and they watch, uh, I don't know, Fireman's Ball, and the girls go off and they watch. Uh,
5: that is a tough go. question. Who is the audience? It's a It's always a big question. Uh, on, on the the new work that I'm starting to do, I'm trying to do some audience research, and it's like that's a toughie. I'm I'm I i i would like to hear your guys' thoughts on it. No, I mean would it would it be for export? A lot of these films
1: were highly commercially. Viable on the international market, even if they were banned in their own country, right? Mm-hmm.
5: I mean, maybe yeah. does anybody know what the well, uh, my guess just based upon and Kevin is the absolute uh, authority on this is in terms of w- my guess would be it played on and maybe because of its short running time, double bills here in the States are in the early 70s, perhaps drive ins, I don't know, or the art house, you know, um, mixed with other European cinema of the time, the high and low culture stuff. I, it, It's it's hard to say, as you say, it has a definite counterculture. It's kind of got like the hair you know, like at the end, it's almost like you expect the dawning of the Age of Aquarius to come on as they're having the little Bacchanal out in the fields and stuff. So am, am I right And you think the assumption that when it played here, it played in like repertory theaters or something or, or drive-ins? I would,
1: can't imagine it would have played in drive-ins. It would have need to have been dubbed into English. And I, I've never heard of any record of it being okay. uh, distributed in that way.
6: After watching some of the special features regarding the soundtrack, I couldn't help but think the producer probably took the the reels and put them in the cans and looked at them and said, someday there will be this person called a hipster, and they will <laughs> appreciate this film, and it will be for them.
4: So it was a time capsule. It was like that that Robert Rodriguez film that he made to be shown in 100 years? Exactly. <laughs> so they put it away in 70, and they're just like, someday. 2005, baby. It's very
1: earnest. It might be ambiguous, and it might be deeply ambivalent, but it's not ironic at all. Agreed. There's yep. there's yep. no Godardian distanciation. I think we're supposed to be fully emotionally invested in everything that's transpiring on the screen at every moment. And, and count
5: they, me as one of them. Yeah. Yes. I yep. mean, no one might, takes that much time into composing and lighting a shot. Just to be ironic. There's no way. Yeah, it's just far too, too artful. uh, A film, I have to say,
1: Weekend is very ironic. And that's about as artfully done as a film could be. But generally, I think you're right
4: yeah i'm right there with this film at all times i'm not sitting back and like "Oh, what a weird film this is from 1970 wow this is so weird and so goofy it's just like i'm right there with this movie every step of the way and whether i saw it in 90 whatever or seeing it you know a few months ago or seeing it again last night i'm with this film the entire way i just will gobble it up. I mean, this is a feast for all the senses, you know, it's, it's wonderful, wonderful cinema. That scene at the end where the song is playing and
1: the, uh, and all the characters are gesturing to her, come join us. I mean, I think that's just so beautiful. I've actually cried during that scene. During yeah, yeah,
5: and and yeah, that just kind of just reinforces uh, my take. I think throughout the whole discussion tonight is for me, this is an emotional uh, film. There's something just absolutely. Uh, I, I, I drink the Kool Aid every time with this film. I just go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Welcome to my clicheathon here, but it's it's uh, yeah. I mean, I I get. Weepy, you know, and it just happened to me recently when I watched it for preparing for tonight. Um, certain certain shots just just get me all, you know, very emotional. A Tears well up, and I think that's actually one of the concerns about
6: it becoming more critically well known. Is that I agree with you? It's it's a very sincere film. There's no archness. It's not overplaying its hand. Mm-hmm. But I think that as it becomes more well known, it's going to fall in the hands of more people who will dissect it in a totally academic way without that heart. And I think that that can often kill good movies. And so good, good sometimes, sometimes okay. a little reluctant.
1: Mike, what's your email address? Impossiblefunky at gmail.com. Okay, I would like to invite the listeners who think we have all four just done exactly that to send you an email. if
4: <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I have to say, we haven't really
6: mentioned Stalin at all. So, you
1: know. Stalin's been dead for 17 years. Isn't it?
6: I said Foucault and Rigoré. I definitely have some. You know, I'll have to go flagellate myself at the public square for
5: that. <laughs> oh, brilliant. I'm, I'm applauding here.
1: Okay, um, when I was talking about the clockwork, I considered mentioning Foucault and I thought, no, it's a bridge too far. It's too early in the night for that.
5: <laughs> I, I would I, star I really in a buddy cop movie with Foucault here, if so. I could. I want to say this though. Axel just mentioned something about uh, you know how it can be, it, it can get to be too overly didactic with this particular film because it opens itself up to so many interpretations. Because it's a film that, in many ways, uh, as as Haim says, defies that type of uh, analysis. When I taught it, Mike, you know that semester when I was doing the cult, cult cinema films. I mean, our quest that semester was to try and define what cult cinema was. You know, it's, an, it's a very elastic definition. The problem that we found was that it's sort of just you know an ad hoc. Uh, it, it can be repeated. It, it's it's a term that can be just sort of like repeated and overused and abused. Oh, it's an instant cult classic, or it's a, you know it's a cult film and stuff like that. And so, but but truly, Valerie is one of those things that on a, on some sort of like cult movie checklist really. Really, kind of just hits each and every little box. Not each and every, but you know the majority of them. And and so, you know, it's been a while now since the Criterion release, and it's, of course, it had the, the the Region Two release, and it still seems to be relatively unknown. So it's probably safe from from too much too much over, like over critique. Uh, uh, so my two cents on. On that,
4: as long as I quit adding it to those uh, twenty-five films that you might not have seen. Yeah, man, or, what are you doing? You're screwing everything up. They're never that polite. It's always twenty-five movies you've missed. <laughs> you've missed, yeah. Twenty-five movies you've never heard of before.
6: I just want to add one more thing because I feel like this needs to be read out loud. The dialogue in this, as translated, is amazing, and I think if you're a fan of like anything from Shakespeare to like just really like, clever, powerful dialogue. There was one chunk in this that knocked me flat on my ass, and I'm going to read it, just if you haven't seen the film, maybe this will motivate you a little bit, because I thought this is an amazing speech. And this is straight from the the novel that I was looking at, (laughs) and it's, Oh, virgin, do you know who you are? You are an alabaster hand extended in a house of plague infested with flies. You are a vessel whose neck I bless with my thumb. You are an as-yet-uncleft pomegranate. You are a shell in which the future ages will ring. You are a bud which will burst when the time is ripe. You are a little rose petal boat floating on the tempestuous ocean. You are a peach oozing red blood. Holy and a lot of times, films that are image-driven, sometimes you don't get that dialogue. But I was, I read that and I thought, you could put that poetically or as prose and it's going to be able to work. It might not be the best Hallmark greeting card, yeah, but I just be, thought that, that was very good writing.
1: Yeah, but the Menarch section at the, you know, Card shop is always so thin. You, you <laughs>
6: welcome any <laughs> <laughs> and it's all Judy Bloom. So, yeah.
1: no, the uh, the line about the pomegranate actually makes it into the film.
4: Oh, that's it. In there, okay. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, I do remember the pomegranate definitely, which is always another good, uh, nice, uh, juicy fruit. Right? Yeah, juicy
5: fruit. Yeah. Car-
4: Caravaggio was fun. With the in his <laughs> All right guys we're going to take a break and play an interview with Peter Hames the author of the Czechoslovak New Wave right after these brief
7: messages
0: Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of current, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the Metro Detroit area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features in a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm hometown atmosphere including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city zip code 48201
8: it's not easy having a good time and it's not cheap either every week the projection booth brings you a new show possibly even two focusing on all genres of cinema If you've sat through the 7-Hour Conan episode, the 6-Hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the Projection Booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
2: Hey. Hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room cast... I am Albert Wiltfong. I am Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We just we talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have scraped the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. It's, it's not what you'd expect, either. No, no, no. We are the yeah. uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but... The room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia. We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot-button topics. We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people, we have to. We have a huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA. We've got stuff on like adaptations. We've got stuff on movies that have been turned into TV shows. A couple of nostalgia retrospectives, looking at things like movie theaters and video stores. Proud of those ones. And we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist. So <laughs> we've got that. Oh yeah, with uh, with more to come. So that's us. That's us. Uh, so, yeah. Listen to the film room. I have to credit the backtrack it is from john carpenter's album lost themes i suggest picking up that album it's a really great album but yeah you can find us at the or on itunes if you prefer to subscribe there we're out there yeah thank you all hope you listen to us and good night all right
4: you always into film, or when did you finally kind of realize that you were a film fan? Film fan? God.
7: <laughs> I was a film fan from a very early age, ever since my father took me to see uh, Buffalo Bill and Billy the Kid, so and The Thief of Bagh- Baghdad. <laughs> so yeah, I was always a film fan when I was uh, a young kid. I was a film fan at school, a film fan at university, and a film fan afterwards. I still am.
4: Now, you're known primarily for all of your study of Eastern European films, especially Czechoslovakian films. When was the first time that you ever saw something from that
7: region, and what was it? Well, depending on how big the region is, I guess the first film I saw from what we would now call Central Eastern Europe was a Polish film, which would be Andrzej Zajda's Canal, which would be the late 50s. Because I was always interested in film and working in film societies, I became quite familiar or reasonably familiar with anything that was coming from Czechoslovakia, Hungary, uh, Russia, the the east of Europe, as well as the west.
4: What year was that?
7: Probably from the 60s onward, yeah.
4: So that was a great, great time for so many different cinemas across the world, but especially the movements that were happening in, in Eastern European cinema, especially the the Czech New Wave. What was kind of your signal to say, my God, this is just some amazing stuff that's happening? Uh,
7: what happened in, in the UK was we saw certain certain films which we knew were pretty good, like uh, Milos Forman's uh, Blonde in Love or Love of a Blonde, at School in US, Menzel's Closely Watched Trains, it was pretty obvious that these were good films. It wasn't till probably the early 70s that I realized that there was something extra special going on, uh, When I began to see some of the other films and realized that these weren't isolated films at all. There was a whole range of films, which if they'd been coming out of uh, Italy or France, would have been much wider recognized. So that's uh, that's how I became uh, aware of that. But I would say that was early 70s, by which time the whole thing was being closed down. How easy or difficult was it to see some of these films back then? Well, in in the early 70s, or shall we say late 60s, early 70s, there were quite a lot of uh, Czech films, not so much Slovak, but certainly Czech films, available for distribution in the UK. So I saw quite a lot from distributors uh, here. But then in the early 70s, they were getting instructions to send the films back to Prague or, in in one case, to actually destroy the print. That was uh, the shop on Main Street. The distributor was told, destroy the print. They didn't destroy it. They kept putting it in the um, cellar somewhere and brought it out again. <laughs> yeah, I think in 1989, probably. That source in the UK was being closed down pretty much in the... Uh, In the early 70s, and my first visit to Czechoslovakia was in 1973, so I went there um, with the intention of finding out about new wave films, but not telling them that, and uh, they were quite happy to show me films from the period up to 1960 and films more or less from the period 1970 onwards, but very little in between. So that was an indication it was quite difficult to see films, well, virtually impossible to see films from that that period at the the time in Czechoslovakia. And of course, they were withdrawing them uh, from international distribution as well.
4: When did you kind of make that decision that you were going to start studying these films and writing
7: about them? That would be the early seventies uh, when I realised there was something uh, odd happening on, something extra special happening, and I got the opportunity to uh, do a degree at the Slade School of Fine Art in film, and it was one of the areas that I was interested in doing. So that's that's how it came about, really. Now, did you speak the language when you went over there? No, no, not at still. <laughs> well, I went. Uh, well, I had in, in interpreters obviously. They were quite generous in that respect. I spent sort of two months basically looking at movies with uh, my own interpreters interpreting them. There seemed to be no restriction on that. The restriction was on what I saw, not on the facilities available for what I did see.
4: So when were you able to finally see some of these quote-unquote
7: forbidden films? Uh, Gradually, I think. Just trying to think the forbidden films Well, of course, there were four which were supposedly banned forever and there are something something over a hundred which in in practice were banned as as well not available for screening I'm just trying to think now Uh, I saw a couple of the banned films in the late 80s sort of one on uh, video I mean a number of films are circulating for instance Menzel's Skylarks on a String Yash is the joke and Yash is all my good countrymen were circulating illicitly. And so I saw the joke in that context. And then shortly before the fall of communism in 89, uh, I got to see, for instance, the ear, which was in the summer of 89, uh, and also a case for the young hangman or a case for the rookie hangman in, uh, September 89. So there was beginning to be a kind of loosening up before the uh, uh, Velvet Revolution. And in fact, in the summer of 89, the Fireman's Ball was actually released in Czechoslovakia. So that was one one of the films that uh, they didn't run the show. So things were loosening up uh, before the, uh, in terms of film, at any rate, before the um, before the revolution, there wasn't the joke actually kind of excised from the party line. I think at one stage, yes, yes. Uh, I mean, one of the things that happened in the again in the seventies was that films that uh, were disapproved of didn't ap- appear in directors' filmographies. So, if you looked up Yerush, there would be no mention of the joke. On the other hand, if you looked up his photographer, cinematographer, uh, it would be mentioned. So it was really uh, quite a a strange situation where you you would find references to films under certain headings and not
4: under other headings. What was kind of the political atmosphere when you were there in the early 70s?
7: Well, apart from the fact that I went there with a kind of expectation of something between kind of James Bond and John le Carré, so I was kind of pretty paranoid at the time I got there. And attitudes... In the early 70s, I found my, my views changed almost from week to week because, uh, you know, you, you ran up against repression on the one hand and normality on the other. But I think the political situation was pretty bad at the time. I mean, it's not obvious necessarily to a foreigner what was going on behind the scenes, but I think the regime was cracking down pretty hard in the early 70s.
4: Now, did you get a chance to talk to any of these filmmakers over the years?
7: Over the years, yes. Not in the early 70s. They were very, very, really quite uh, careful to prevent that happening. No, I've, I've met uh, many of them. Um, certainly uh, Menzel, Nemitz, Yerush, uh among them. It
4: must have been kind of revelatory for you to, well, a, finally see their work, and then b, be able to talk to them at these points and find out a little bit more of some of these hidden years that were happening between the sixties and seventies.
7: Yeah, mind you, we, I guess, we didn't talk much about what happened while they weren't working, or what they were, what happened when they were making films they didn't approve of. Can you tell me what your Yuris was like? I always found Yeresh very approachable. Uh, I mean, he's, uh, for one thing, he's, uh, and he spoke English well. I remember um, one thing that was interesting about him was that he had actually, actually got links with British cinema because he, uh, along with uh, a number of other directors who I think included Foreman and Passer, actually, uh, received Lindsay Anderson when he went to, uh, Czechoslovakia in the, 1960s. He continued to correspond with Anderson uh, in the sort of post, post-invasion post period. So he did have links with British cinema. He was pretty well-educated in terms of, of international cinema as indeed, as indeed were most of the filmmakers. I remember having a Uh, a long conversation with him about Kurosawa at one time. (laughs) He remained active, uh, of course, during the 70s, making films which were never uh, as good as the films he made in the 60s, but nonetheless were never completely pointless. Uh, He always made films which potentially had some sort of uh, significance to them. So I think he was he was very active and continued, he was full of plans. And he was full of plans uh, at the time, you know, before he had his accident, which uh, put an end to his career. Now, when it comes to his work, what was the first thing that you remember seeing by him? It may well have been Valerie and the Week of, week of Wonders. I think it probably was. And the second one I saw would have been The Cry. And the last one to see would have been The Joke, because I saw that in the late, um, late eight, um, yeah, late 80s.
4: then when it comes to Valerie Inner Week of Wonders, did you see that in Czechoslovakia, or did that make it, uh, over to the
7: UK? That made it to the UK, yeah. As did The Cry. And so, two of his films were released, uh, here. Uh, actually, Valerie Inner Week of Wonders was reasonably well distributed amongst, uh, in art house cinemas. So I, that would have, that was completed in 70, so it would have been showing here in about 70, 72, 73. Now what was your first impression of the film? Well, it was a knockout in many ways, and, uh, I, I kind of, at the time, I, I sort of thought, well, I don't think it now but I thought at the time well this is this is a bit like Fellini <laughs> uh, and if it were Fellini we'd we, you know it would have uh, had a much bigger re- reputation but the other problem with in terms of its reputation was of course that it came out after the invasion and after the interest in the uh, new wave was basically brought to an end so it was a, a related if you like uh, manifestation of that I think
4: of course, all of these films being made in a not very good political time to put it lightly, do you think that's the reason why the Eastern European new wave films just aren't nearly as known as some of the other ones, like the French or the the um well even the Japanese or the italian
7: well, I think uh, the Soviet invasion in sixty eight basically brought the shutters down on the new wave. They brought the shutters down on Czechoslovakia full stop. Uh, If you uh, look at the press or international coverage of anything coming from Czechoslovakia after '68, it's very limited and that's of course what the authorities wanted. They wanted people to forget Uh, and that's what they did. and I I would have thought, and certainly I thought at the time in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, that this is a movement that have, would have continued and evolved had circumstances been different. But that didn't happen. And because it came to an end, I think interest came to an end as well. And of course, film critics are fairly fickle, and they tend to move from <laughs> one new wave to another new wave with quite... With a certain amount of rapidity, so I think a lot of the early films of the French New Wave were were also forgotten. You know,
4: do you think that some of the repression that was going on in Eastern Europe was perhaps
7: responsible for some of the creativity that was being shown in these films? Well, that's a difficult one to to quantify. I, I, personally, I think yes is the answer to that because if you're prevented from doing something, and if you're told to do things in a certain way, I a mean, natural reaction is to do them in a, in a different way. Also, if you have a tradition of uh, sort of avant-garde film or film art which has been repressed, there's a tendency to uh, to want to revive it. So, I think the repression will have triggered it in 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 some ways. The other thing I think is the existence of the film school in Prague and famu, where filmmakers were able to study a wide range of films that weren't restricted by censorship because films which came into the country for assessment, if you like, as to whether they were suitable for distribution would be brought to the film school, so they would be fully familiar with uh, West European art cinema, for instance, uh, in the 60s. So there was a lot of stimulus simply coming from seeing films from other people. And if you felt you had the freedom to at least express yourself in even a limited way, then that was going to come through in the films, I think.
4: When was the first edition of the Czechoslovak New Wave? When did that first come out?
7: That came out in 1985.
4: What was that like, trying to put together this book about films where a lot of them you
7: probably still couldn't even see them. That was a problem. Um, basically, uh, there were some films you couldn't include because you hadn't even got secondary information about them. There are other films which, where there was secondary information, I would refer to them, but not to discuss them in detail. So, clearly, that was a problem. How was the book received when it came out? Pretty well. Pretty well. Uh, it was... Uh, I mean, actually, it was based on a dissertation I wrote. I thought uh, at the time, well, nobody in England is going to be interested in this because at the time we were heavily into French film theory and um, the revival of uh, Brechtian approaches and so on. So I, I actually sent it to University of California, and they were immediately interested, and they only wanted. Relatively minor alterations. I mean, I think the editor there, who was editor of Film Quarterly, Ernest uh, Kallenbach, uh, was actually interested in the subject and committed to uh, publishing something in this area. So I think that was one of the reasons it uh, it got published there.
4: Yeah, the the cover of the at least my edition of the book is uh, seen from uh, still from Daisies, uh-huh. and Daisies and Valerie, and there are so many other films that really kind of played in this uh, surrealist tradition uh, or uh, arena when it came to these Czechoslovakian films. Do you think that that was kind of also a way to subvert what was being uh, laid down as the law as far as what you could and could not do in cinema?
7: Surrealism, I don't think, was something which was uh, technically approved of. But certainly in the case of Valerie and the Book of Wonders, the novel on which it was based was written by Vydeslav Nezval, who had been a leader of the surrealist movement in the 30s, but who'd become a kind of, um, uh, who'd committed himself to communism, basically, in the 50s. And therefore, he himself was not uh, considered to be in any way a a sort of subversive figure, uh, although the things he had produced might have been. So uh, I think that may have been one of the reasons the film. Uh, actually got made was that uh, Nesval was an acceptable figure although the nature of the film was very different and of course uh, surrealism, uh, I remember I I did ask Yuresh about the influence of surrealism and I think he was talking about surrealism as a not merely a specific movement as it still is in in the Czech Republic uh, and Slovakia but also as having a general influence on the arts, in other words on the style, overall style and look of look of films, as well as being specifically surrealist. So I think there was a, a flavor of surrealism present, yeah. But I, I wouldn't say that most of the films I wouldn't describe as surrealist.
4: No, I would definitely say that one and Daisies are probably the biggest examples that I can think of.
7: Well, yeah, very interesting with DAISES, I mean, uh, you, it, yeah, that can be interpreted in so many ways, but the actual surrealist group in Czechoslovakia, or at least Vratislav Effenberger, leader of the group, actually disapproved of DAISES for a variety of reasons. They were quite keen on Miros Foreman because uh, his work actually presented the absurd from everyday life for public view, and that was uh, an approach which, was favored very much at the time. But yeah, I, th- I think um, the interesting thing there, I, I mean, obviously, Jan Schwenkmaier was an influence in his uh, early films. Something I didn't realize until recently was that a cinematographer of Daisies. Yaroslav Kuchera was actually an admirer of Schwankmayer's short films. So, perversely, there is a kind of Schwankmayer type influence in Basis. So, in that sense, maybe surrealism does rear rear its head. Kind of getting off track just a little bit here, when it comes to
4: Foreman, he's the one who, of course, made it, you know, when the dream, you know, coming to America, wins Oscars, all of this kind of stuff, becomes the. The success that I'm sure some people would really crave for, whereas I feel other people who stayed put and made their films are possibly even more successful. But were there other examples of emigres from the Czech Republic who then went on to be the Hollywood or other uh, cinema filmmakers?
7: Well, yeah. Well, the obvious example there would be Ivan Passa who, of course, worked with Foreman in Czechoslovakia, uh, who um, has made a lot of American films, uh, most notably cutter's Way, which is something of a classic in its own right. Then there was Jan Kadar, who directed The uh, Shop on Main Street. He made some films in North America as well. He made The Angel Levine, which was actually with Harry Belafonte, Zero Mostel, and he made a film in Canada, which was very well received, called Lies My Father Told Me. And He did some TV work in the U.S., but unfortunately he died without sort of being able to establish a major career. Uh, other filmmakers, well, Nemets ended up in the U.S., but didn't make any films, really. Uh, had a small part acting in the unbearable Lightness of being. Other directors went to other countries. Wojciech Jasny went to Western Europe, made a lot of feature films there. Some Slovak directors like Barabas made films in Western Europe. So quite a lot of filmmakers did go abroad and did make careers, but uh, they haven't, with the exception of Foreman, made the same kind of international impact.
4: I hope that this doesn't happen to you very often, but if you're ever in an instance where somebody comes up to you and asks you what you write about and you say, you know, the Czech New Wave, if that happens to come up, (laughs) if they're interested in films where they could see what the Czech New Wave is all about, what are some of the ones that you would recommend to them?
7: Well, I would say, yes. Start start with Milosh Foreman and the Fireman's Ball. It's very accessible. Carry on with closely observed trains or closely watched trains. Uh, also very accessible. And then go on to Daisy's Valerian, the Week of Wonders, The Party and the Guests, or Report on the Party and the Guests in the U.S., Diamonds of the Night. These are films by Just Jasnis, yes, All My Good Countrymen. And that would be a good start starting point. You get a range there, I think. You have not just written about uh,
4: Czechoslovakian films. You've delved into some of the filmmakers, such as Young Svankmeyer, but some other books as well. Can you tell me about some of those?
7: Uh, Svankmeyer was... um, I'm just trying to remember how Svankmeyer came about. I I was asked to uh, actually find a a publisher for a book on Svankmeyer that the um, Czech uh, Film Archive was planning. This would have been in the early early 90s and i approached a number of publishers in, uh, in the in uk and elsewhere and none of them were interested and then subsequently one of them came back to me and said what about a book on Schwankner? and i said oh that's a great idea but i don't think i should do it on my own because it was such a specific subject and it had so many elements to it so uh, that's how I, I came to edit a collection, which. Uh, wow included uh, articles by a variety of people who had been interested in Schwenkmaier and also material from inside uh, uh, the uh, Surrealist movement in Czechoslovakia. So uh, we had a very long article by Frantisek Drier, who was a kind of spokesperson for the uh, for the movement in many ways, uh, which was included in the book, and a long interview with Meyer. Which covered most of the ground that that we were looking at. So I I, I mean, actually, that was I was really, in the end, quite pleased with that book because it it not only gave people an opportunity to find out about Schrankmeyer's work, but also presented the view from the inside as well as the view from the outside. And I think that's increasingly something that I've certainly tried to do since since 1989 then things have been freed up, you can now get, it's, it's not just a question of sort of West European critics or US critics actually saying what they think about the movies. It's about opinions coming from inside and perspectives coming from inside. And certainly that's what I've tried to do in, in anything I've, uh, I've been associated with since. Uh, for instance, a book on cinema of Central Europe includes a lot of... Uh, a lot of contributions from uh, um, Czech, Slovak, Polish, um, I believe it even has some Hungarian critics in there. Yeah. So what are you working on these days? Um, I'm, well, I'm trying not to work on anything too much. I'm mainly <laughs> writing about um, 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 notes on um, various DVD releases, the latest of which is All oh, My Good Countrymen." Yeah, I've recently contributed to a book on, uh, uh, the fairy tale beyond Disney, which is edited by Jack Zipes and, and his, and two, two other, two of his other collaborators, which is looking at, um, fairy story films in other countries and through other traditions. So I've contributed to that as my most recent, uh, recent work.
4: Would you consider Valerie
7: to be a, a fairy tale? Yes, I think so. Yes. Somewhere I found a quote. Oh, I won't bother to read you a quotation. Very much fits into a tradition of fairy story. I think, um, although uh, of course it's many other things besides the, the horror film and so on. But the the emphasis on uh, family relations uh, and what what they might or might not be is very uh, and being being brought out by stepmothers and having stepfathers and so on. That's very much the terrain of fairy story. I think. Yeah, there's such a question in that as to
4: who's the father and is Eagle really the brother. It just goes on and on. As, and they keep kind of doubling back on on themselves. And I mean, I, I found it fascinating, but it was just like, wow, the, this is so concerned
7: about family throughout. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And, that, uh, and the film is deliberately sort of reversing every kind of sort of resolution that you come up with. <laughs>
4: Well, it also seems so all of the parental figures, no matter what, whether they're, you know, the real parents or the fake parents, they all seem to be so predatory.
7: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I don't know whether I can comment on that, but I don't think, uh, yeah, I I suppose, you know, you you could argue that um, that the parents uh, create a kind of, whether they want to or not, create some sort of repressive, uh, regime which has to be uh, rejected
4: yeah i would be curious to uh read a uh a freudian uh interpretation of that film just because of all of the kind of strange relationships that are happening there sexualized or not between Mm. valerie and these these father and mother figures Mm. Hmm. Or grandmother figures, I suppose.
7: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think those sorts of influences, so obviously, they influenced the Czech surrealist movement, which you know began in the uh, early '30s. So um, you know, those uh, aware, that awareness is there, I think, in in the in the film, definitely. Thank
4: you so much, Mr. Ames. This has been a real pleasure. I would uh, definitely love to talk to you again sometimes about uh, Jan Spockmeyer. I really like his stuff, and I like what you've written about it.
7: Oh, good. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I think he's um, hopefully planning a new film, but uh, I'll keep our fingers crossed. <laughs>
4: All right, we are back and talking about Valerie and her week of wonders. Now, let's get into the whole Freudian, Stalinist, inter- no, let's not. Let's, I, I've had a really good discussion with you guys. Is there more that we want to say about Valerie and her week of wonders? I think we'll
5: all probably take a take a,
4: a final summation here. Who wants to go first? I could address the sort of
1: psychoanalytic aspect of the of the film.
4: You know, I. While you're doing that, I mean, one of the things that you mentioned to me via Facebook, I'm sorry to interrupt you, was that your wife provided you some insight on some of the, the flower language and the uh, uh, some of the, the herbs and all these things. Like, I, I don't know what the sprig of rosemary, taking that to the church means, but if you have any insight on that, I would absolutely love to hear any of that kind of stuff.
1: Rosemary is associated with uh, remembering the dead. And there's a very simple and very disgusting reason for that, and that is that rosemary is very, very effective for disguising the smell of rotting human flesh. It jujitsus the flavor profile <laughs> off in a different direction. In, in his, uh, part of his book, God is Not Great, uh, the famous atheist talks about the injunctions against eating pork, and he mentions that fire um. f- He says firefighters rarely express a taste for roast pork. And so one of the reasons that that you open up your uh, cookbook and you find a lot of pork with rosemary is that that rosemary disguises the bad pork smell because we're basically like pigs. The reason we can't eat pigs is, you know, there's this huge overlap in terms of the pathogens that'll kill both of us and so rosemary is this spice that's associated with the uh, um, making the corpse smell less bad and so a person growing up in a rural area in Eastern Europe in the you know 17th 18th or 19th century probably well into the 20th every funeral the the corpse would have been just you know entombed in tons of rosemary in the coffin uh, because that kind of you know, keeps people from running out of the church in, in horror. So, yeah, that's that's what that is. Now, what what damn that Kevin, to, that is. Yeah, you are just
5: wow. That is fascinating.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now, what that has to do with love grows where my rosemary goes, I'll never really understand that because that was actually a hit at the moment this film was being shot.
4: And I was noticing that the flower girl, her flowers change throughout the film. And there's one point where she has gladiolas, which I know are are generally considered to be the deaf flower. Uh, I'm not that attuned to flower language or to flowers themselves to kind of take apart all the different flowers that she has and what they might mean during the different scenes. Because like I was saying earlier, she is constantly in this film. Like once you notice that character and notice just how often she shows up on screen, you just will see her everywhere because she is just this kind of shadow of Valerie that you see her constantly. And if you don't see her, you see Hedvika. So it's one or the other. Like I said, it seems like they are kind of, you know, I don't want to say two sides of the same coin because it feels like Valerie somewhere right there in the middle between these two ends. She's even in the,
1: the basement sexual revelry thing she's standing mutely off to the side when that's going on
4: and i know that she gives her a very knowing look at the church the first time we go to the church and she even well i'd like when she offers valerie a flower towards the end and then snatches it back like i'm not going to offer you flowers anymore because she'd been doing that throughout the entire rest of the film well
1: because valerie's crossed over for good they they know they can't they can't be together anymore
6: Axel, you got final thoughts on the film, sir? I think it's a very good film, and it definitely is one that you want to watch with someone because you're going to want to talk about it. And I would encourage anyone watching it to not try to solve it, but to try to <laughs> see how complicated they can make it. Because I think it really responds well to that. You can find all these different meanings in it. I found myself thinking of Hamlet with the, uh, you know, giving out Rosemary for Remembrance, and the players are coming to town, and there's a a main character who's got some problems going on in her family. And I think it really responds to that. And it's not like a lot of movies where you have to solve the twist ending. You live in that town with Valerie and you keep learning and you experience
5: an emotional state. I would bookend it by by sort of like kind of repeating what I started off the show by saying, which was that it's a film where if you if you you you, you watch it from a certain perspective, looking for a certain type of payoff, you're going to be disappointed. It's for me, it's it's very experiential film. You just have to sort of like surrender to it, open up to its its uh, lyrical beauty. And it's sweetness too, because the, the to me there's, you know, beyond the sort of, you know, coming of age and, and first menstruation cycle and things that are going on. For me it's there's a there's a wonderful sweetness to the film. Um I you know, they stay what I what I say in the in the Blu ray or criterion is that they cast uh, the casting called they look at 1,500 over 1,500 girls for the part of Valerie. I don't know how true it is, but you know, it's what they state. That's a lot, of, a lot of girls. And I think they just hit the utter jackpot. Because for me, she, as you said, Mike, she's in virtually every scene in the film. And the, the wrong actress here, or, or, or uh, she wasn't exactly an actress, but, you know, uh, budding actress. It, it, I don't think it would have worked the same. So I, I not only am I always just blown away by the film's uh, beauty, and sensuousness, but uh, there's there's this wonderful sort of sweetness to the film too, you know, between that transition between adolescence and adulthood, that I think it captures beautifully. I love the movie.
1: I agree that it's a film that that could be productively thought of as a movie that was made to be basically to kill the act of definitive interpretation. That that really what makes it beautiful and what makes it moving and what makes it. A film that I think people will always watch is the fact that that no definitive uh, meaning can be ascribed to it that closes off its endless possibilities for, for affecting our emotions.
4: Yeah, I agree. I could watch this thing – Tomorrow night, tonight, after I'm off the phone with you guys, and I imagine that I'm going to see things that I didn't see before, think about things in a different way, and if people listening to this episode just think that we're all completely full of it, I completely agree with you. I think that everybody can come to this party with a different interpretation, and that's one of the things that I think makes Valerie in her Week of Wonders such a wonderful film is that it is open to all of these different ideas and none of them necessarily has to be right or wrong and that, that to me is what makes a, a truly interesting film Alright, we are going to take another break and play a trailer for next week's show Et
8: voilà la plus étonnante La plus époustouflante, elle est mystérieuse, la plus enjôleuse, la plus sulfureuse. Julie Oui
5: Bonjour les enfants.
8: Oui, Julie, Salut,
5: c'est, des... c'est Céline, je dois-moi te dire. Coucou, c'est qui
8: Mais tu vois quoi
4: That's right. Next week we're back and we're discussing Rivette's Celine and Julie go boning, uh, another film that I would consider to be a terrific double feature with Valerie. And it'd be great, too, because Valerie's only 77 minutes and Celine and Julie is like three and a half hours. So <laughs> there's your whole afternoon right there. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-host. Dr. Nick, what has been going on
5: in your world? Uh, a lot lately, Mike. Last time I was on the show was for Death Game. Oh, and by the way, yes, and I have had an ongoing pen pal uh, relationship with Sandra Locke uh, because of that episode. So thank you very much. Uh, very cool. Very cool. Um, the the biggest news though is that I have a new post uh, at at Alfred University in Western New York. Oh, that's uh, Robert Klein's alma mater. Yes, exactly. Wow, Kevin, you do in fact know everything. <laughs> uh, yes, it is Robert Klein's. It's it's a lovely, lovely a small university in western New York in the sort of foothills of the Allegheny Mountains. And I accepted a position there as a citizen professor in the MassCom department. Uh, and I'm moving there in about six weeks. Uh, I'm going there in a couple weeks to find a place. And I could not be happier. I'm so thrilled. And and I'm starting work on a new book too, which has basically the same methodology and scope of the last one, which was all about the Spanish horror film. And this time I'm going to try and take apart the, the German Krimi and And <laughs> because Tim Bergfelder and Sasha Gerhard's have done some extraordinary work, but they're just they're small they 're just chapters, and there's been no sort of book length study on the subject and so i'm I'm off to Europe next summer to do some to do some research on that, get some interviews lined up and and uh, and and do an anglophone uh version of 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 the uh of the events. And so that's going to take up some time. So that's, what's hey. been going on with me, Mike. How about you, Axel? Well, the big thing that's going
6: on with me is my wife and I are preparing for our first baby who is coming Yay. in September. Yay. Thank you. And, um, she's mostly vetoing names. I suggest, uh, including <laughs> Glenda Danzig, as far as how I'm working um, in the field, I'm, working on a couple of new short stories, hopefully for a book in the near future. And I might have some more news about some of my publications with Roy C. Booth potentially being reprinted in the next couple of weeks. So check axelcohagan.com for details. And Kevin, what's been keeping you out of trouble?
1: Uh, well, I'm working on a book. Tentative working title is From Beavis and Butthead to Tea Party Nation, Don't Fight <laughs> Guy Politics and Culture in America. Wow. Uh, the problem is I can't come up with the last chapter. But... <laughs> <laughs> trying to move the it's page counter months, right? on that one, and I have two blogs that I launched in late uh, 2015. Uh, one is called the Crawling Eye, which is an international cult media blog for deep blog essays, and the other is on gender and sexuality in the media, eroticism in film, uh, gender construction in film, uh, called Not Knot Not and
4: Gender. Uh, And both of these are on Blogspot. And Mike, can you put the links in the show notes? Definitely will. Well, thank you guys for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. So, yeah, like I said, I will definitely link to uh, AxelCohagan.com, over to Kevin's blogs, and over to Nick's first book. So you guys can uh, pick that up over at our website, Projection-Booth.com. You can also find a little bit more about uh, Peter Hames and more about Valerie and her Week of Wonders over there as well. You can also find links on Projection-Booth.com to our iTunes page where you can go and rate and review the show. It's free. It's easy, and it's the best way that you can help the projection booth to take over the world. only 77 minutes long but we're going to talk for four and a half hours right
1: and hopefully not do it twice right Mike?